0: Um, All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 8. That's where we'll be. We've been looking at the book of Joshua um, for uh, this fall, and we um, are in chapter 8, and this is such an interesting chapter, and then to set it up, I'll say, you know, uh, I'll help us out with it. We talk about uh, putting things in a right perspective. Anybody ever heard that or... Given that counsel, or remember, uh, it's one of the things to, that I talk to my kids most about is putting things in a right perspective. At, at a certain age or certain time in life or certain circumstances, things can be huge, they can be overblown. And sometimes we've got to step back and somebody tells us, hey, we've got to put things in a right perspective. It, I looked it up, it means literally to clarify, to appraise, to or to assess the true value, importance, or significance of something. It's like the difference between a microscope and a telescope. So here's what a microscope does. A microscope, it magnifies small things to make them appear larger than they are. It makes small things big. What a telescope does is it looks at things that are far away and in a sense it, it brings them near. It, it it allows us to see what's huge and massive and magnificent and it brings it into a proper view. One makes small things big, the other helps us see how truly big something is. That describes for us what worship does. Worship is a spiritual telescope, if you will. And the reality is, so many of us, we live these microscope lives. And what we need is sort of a telescope perspective. We need a perspective change. And that's what's happening in this Chapter is there's going to be uh, this this telescope event for the Israelites after they go to battle with a uh, city that they already lost to. And so I want to look at chapter 8, and this is the way I'm going to do it. We're going to look at the first couple of verses, and then I'm going to summarize for you what takes place in the middle, and then we're going to pick up near the end. I'm going to talk about a difficult part of the passage, and then we're going to look um, at what they do after they win the war. So, if you're with me, Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, this is how it is recorded in God's holy word. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. And arise and go up to Ai, or Ai. See, I have given into your hands the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So here's one of the things they're being reminded of right off the bat, that that God's people are dependent upon God's power for success. They're always dependent. We're always dependent. Always, always, always dependent upon God's power. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. It's the first thing that God's going to say to Joshua, right after they deal with the sin that was taking place in the camp after they got defeated at Ai the first time. If you remember, there was, you know, he'd gone to defeated Jericho. God said, don't take any of, the, uh, of, the, of what Jericho has. You're to set it all to destruction. Achan decides, well, these things are beautiful. If I take them, no big deal. I'll hide them in my tent. God knew about it. Brings the nation account, there's an investigation and a a trial and ultimately an execution, but the sin is eradicated. And the very next words from God are to Joshua, don't be dismayed. It's his encouragement, but, but listen, it's his grace as well. I mean, Israel, they suffered loss. They were discouraged. All the things that happened with Achan, sin. But the sin has been dealt with. It's been covered and encouragement follows. And it reminds us of this. Listen, the past is the past. We must deal with sin before God. We must come to God, deal with it, with repentance, dying to ourselves, and then looking forward to what he has for us right now. See, with, when they were confronted with sin, when Achan's confronted with the sin in chapter 7 we saw last week, he, he confessed it honestly, no excuses were made, and the great value of chapter 7 was it reminded Joshua, that listen, this thing's not going to happen. This thing God's called him to into the promised land is not going to happen by might nor by power, But as the prophet says, by my spirit, says the Lord. And we're also reminded. Listen, when sin is confessed, when it's dealt with before God, when we take our sin before God, we confess it. As 1 John 1, 9 says, we confess our sin. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. The east from the west, by the very definition, he puts it where no one can find them. J. Wilbur Chapman, he's a hymn writer, wrote the hymn, Jesus, What a friend for saviors. He tells the story of a German math professor um, who was converted under his ministry, became a member of his church, and one morning during a men's Bible study at the church, Chapman commented, he said, you know, God's taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he turned to the math professor and he said, how, how far is the east from the west? And he records it this way, he says, the man responded in tears saying, Man, you cannot measure it. For if you put your stake here and then keep going east ahead of you and west behind you, you can go around the world and come back to your stake and east will still be ahead of you and west behind you. The distance is immeasurable. And I thank God that's where my sins have gone. Here's what I want you to know. I don't know what you're sitting with this morning. I don't, I don't know what haunts your thoughts this morning. But we can always begin again. And starting again begins with God. And it continues as, as we respond obediently to his initiative in our life. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see God. Listen, don't, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Don't dismay. And then, he, then he's going to send Joshua these instructions. Okay, now here's something to be obedient for. Here's how I'm going to lead you. And So Joshua gets to receive this and then respond in this obedience. And so God will say, take and arise and go I've given the the people, I've given the king, I've given the city, I've given his land. God's still leading his people in the direction of his purposes. It's exactly the same thing God had said to Joshua standing outside the walls of Jericho. Notice in in, uh, there in 8.2, at the very end of 2, he tells him, this is after, and the Lord said to Joshua. He, he's going to give him a, a strategy. He's going to give him instructions. You're going to go and you're going to lay an ambush a, 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 on, on the city. You're, you're going to come in behind the city with an ambush. We're not going to march around the walls this time. This is the way we're going to do it. We're going to do it by an ambush. And then if you skip down to verse 18, you see it says, then the Lord said to Joshua, and then he's going to say, and then when the time comes... You're going to stretch out a javelin that's in your hand. You're going to do that toward I, and, and for, for, for I will give it into your hand. Gives him the strategies God's going to show up at just the right moment. God is going to lead Joshua as he leads his people into battle. Now, I want to show you one more thing that, comes in the middle of verse 2. Notice this, only its spool and its livestock, you shall take his plunder for yourself. God's going to allow them in this city of Ai, in this this battle, they're going to get to keep the spoil for themselves. And and it just highlights how foolish Achan seems now. Could have had all his heart desired if he'd only waited for the Lord. Listen, God God's desire is not to bring ruin to his people. But as we lose sight that God's a generous God. He's a God who provides. He's good. If we lose sight of that, and we think God's against us somehow. And he's not generous, he's stingy. Then Covetousness, like a cancer, begins to consume us. I mean, look, this is theology that goes all the way back to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. What he does is he, he takes and focuses like a microscope on the restriction that God has imposed. Listen, God said, you can have everything. There's a generosity and a provision and a, and a lavished grace. This is, everything is yours. Except for the one tree there. The tree of good of, any, of evil. And just trust me on it. This is for your own good. But the serpent comes along with a microscope and says, see, God, God's not for you. God's trying to keep things from you. Instead of, you know, Adam, Eve responding with all the riches that God had lavished upon them, all they can see is what they can't have. Listen, part of our faith depends upon we recognizing that God is good. He's for us, and he's generous. Well, the next verses, verse 3 to 29, it's a long battle that's recorded. Let me summarize it for us. So, Joshua, he's going to be, he's commanded by God. He's going to divide the fighting men into two parts and he's going to prepare for the ambush just as God had instructed him. And then after all those things were arranged according to the plan, the the king of Ai is going to come out and he's going to see Joshua and the sons of Israel and they're in fighting distance. And just like last time, it stirs them to go into battle against them. The Israelites are going to pretend to run away. The men of Ai are going to pursue them. And so they all leave the city, just as the Scripture says. And they leave the city deserved it. But they advance into this place that's arranged. Joshua turns, raises the javelin, just like he's told. The ambushes come. They... They strike the enemy that's caught there in the middle. And all those who were living in I were overcome. Then they hang the king on a tree and bury him under a pile of stones at the entrance of the gate. So let's talk about that for one sec. Look at verse 24 with me. Skip down. It says this, When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them. And all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord as he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised it over a heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, This is the kind of stuff Facebook posts are made of, right? The God of the Old Testament. Well, let me say just a couple of things about this. And the the first thing I'll say, I'm going to do it with the help of Origen of Alexandria. He lived uh, in the second century, 185 AD to 254. He's one of the early church fathers. And he's standing up before his congregation in Alexandria. And this is how he starts his homily on Joshua chapter 8, and I think it's instructive. I mean, let me just say, our, our sensibilities are not just 21st sens- sensibilities, 21st century sensibilities, okay? This is what Origen says. It says, I plead with you, O hearers of the sacred scrolls, not to hear with disgust or distaste those things that are read because the narration of them seems to be less pleasant. For you ought to know that those things that are read are indeed worthy of the utterance of the Holy Spirit. But in order to explain them, we need the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, Origen knew. I mean, we can't just say, oh, well, I mean, if we lived back in the first century, if we lived in the ancient Near East, I mean, this would make sense to us. No, I mean, Origen knew that his readers in the second century would find it distasteful. Along these lines, what's recorded, we need to make clear. This is not the vengeance of men. It's a sober and solemn judgment of God. It's not a whim. What God has Israel do, or really what God's doing through Israel to this city, I, what he did to Jericho, and what he'll do to the cities that they encounter, it's not a fleeting moment of anger on the part of God. It's judgment that was promised for centuries. And then it's patiently brought to pass. Just listen to these words. I'm going to put them on the screen, but I want you to see them. Genesis chapter 15. God says this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. He's telling Abram, your people are going to go into slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward... They'll come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go back to your fathers in peace. You'll, you'll be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Well, why wait four generations? And he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is not yet complete, those that lived in I. Called the Amorites. In fact, the seven nations in the land of Canaan, when they get there the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites they're all under the judgment of God. I'll show you just a couple more passages Leviticus 18. God tells his people, Don't make yourself unclean by any of these things, for all these nations. Nations that are currently in the promised land, I'm driving out before you. They've become unclean, and the land became unclean. So that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, well, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord's driving them out. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord God's driving them out, that he may confirm what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So so you need to know what's taking place. This is judgment. Judgment. And it's judgment on the part of God. Now, the second thing I'll say about this, and then we'll move on. And the second thing I'm going to say with the help of Dale Ralph Davis, who's a contemporary Old Testament scholar. And he says the hanging, he reminds us, the hanging, when they hanged the king of Ai, they didn't, he was already dead when they hung him. The hanging didn't kill him, Okay. And then he reminds us that Deuteronomy 21 says, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And then he says, here's a solemn sign that he and his people, in fact, all of Canaan, stand under the Lord's curse and judgment. But why? Certainly it's gruesome. But perhaps the living God stoops to such spectacles Or else we might never fear sin. Even at this moment, you and I might not be overwhelmed by the gravity of God's judgment. I mean, it's something that happened to the king of Ai back in 1400 B.C. Yet for the hardness of our hearts, God has given us still another picture of judgment. The king of Jews hanging on a tree. As Paul says in Galatians 3, having become a curse for us. There's a sense in which it points forward to how God's going to judge the sin of mankind, our sin, and that He'll do it through His Son, Jesus. Well, Israel's won the war, and they take the spoils. And you know, if you've seen, you know, old war movies about you know, ancient times. It appears that at the end of a battle, what the, uh, what the army does, what the people do, is there's revelry and party and drunkenness and all those things. But that's not how Joshua leads God's people. Look at what it says in verse 30. It says, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he'd written in all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born. with their elders and officers and their judges stood on the opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse. According to all that is written in the book of the law, there is not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived amongst them. And part of you thinks, what what in the world is this? I thought we were talking about a battle. And so what what Joshua does between verse 29 and verse 30 is he takes all of Israel and he marches them 30 miles north to an area called Shechem. And Shechem's at the base of Mount Ebal and it's in this plain Um, And on one side of the plain, the north side is is Mount Ebal, and then you've got uh, Mount Gerizim on the south side. From peak to peak, those two mountains are about a mile and a half. But if you were to measure the distance from the base, the two bases that face each other, it's only about 500 yards. It's this natural theater you stand on one mountain, and you can speak across the valley and be heard on the other mountain. This place, this area, this is where Abraham makes his first stop when he enters the promised land in Genesis 12. And God said, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. And then Abraham builds an altar. It's a place where Jacob dug a well. In fact, you can go today to Jacob's well. It's still there. In the New Testament, this area is known as Samaria. Mount Gerizim, think about it this way. Mount Gerizim is called the Mount of Blessing, and Mount Ebal is called the Mount of Cursing. And Moses is the one who actually instructed the people that when they get into the promised land, they were to go to these two mountains and they were to perform a ceremony that reminded them of the covenant they were in with God. And that's what's taking place here. If you went back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, in fact, if you've got your Bibles and you want to go back there for just a second, I'm just... I'm going to be there for just a second, but I want to show you something. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses, he's telling the elders, keep all the commands that I commanded. And then in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 27, if you don't have it, you can just listen to it. It says, on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land of the Lord, your God, the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you'll write on them all the words of this law, meaning, probably meaning Deuteronomy. All the words of Deuteronomy. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God's giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you've crossed over, you'll set up these stones concerning which I command you today, on Mount Ebal, and you'll plaster them with plaster. Also tells them they're going to build an altar of uncut stones. I'll tell you about that in one sec. But then he gives the instructions. This is what you're supposed to do when you do that. So you put half the people on one mountain, Mount Ebal, and you put the other half of the people on Mount Gerizim so in uh, 13 it tells you who's on verse 12 who's on Mount Gerizim verse 13 who's on Mount Ebal and then it says the Levites will declare and then this is what happens the Levites they'll stand up and they yell from one mountain Mount Ebal the Mount of Curses they're going to yell over to the Mount of Gerizim it's going to be a call and a response and they're going to yell these are the curses and then the Mount Gerizim people respond with, amen. So just listen to some of this. Cursed be the man. They're doing it in the loud voice that says, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen and sets it up in secret. And all the people will answer and they'll say, Amen. doesn't stop there. Curse be anyone who dishonors his father and his mother. People on the other side. Ooh, I like this. All right, here we go. One more. You ready? <laughs> Curse be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Amen. There you go. So they do this back and forth, back and forth. And then they get to the end of the curses. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen 15 curses. Then they switch sides, or they don't switch sides. They, they switch, and this side begins to shout blessings. All the blessings will come upon you. They'll overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. Amen. And so back and forth, the cursings of life. and this is what Joshua has led the people to do here in Joshua chapter 8. This is what they're doing. And the purpose of the of the detour, there's so much in these verses, and it's meant for us to, to reflect upon it. They they go, they they take this time out, they they travel up these, you know, 30 miles to be reminded of something we must never forget. That being obedient to God and his word is far more important than fighting God's battles. Israel's success, listen, it's not just that they're beating the bad guys. It's not that they're just rounding them all up and executing God's judgment. It's not that, you know, and kicking them out of the land. It's that everyone who's called Israel would totally submit themselves to God and his word. That the covenant they're in with God is far more important than the conquest than they're engaged in. It reminds them of the importance of what it means to say to God, amen. Worship is, is responsive, that there's this amen. It means, I believe. I'm certain about it. I'm adjusting my life to the reality of your truth, God. That's what amen means. And it reminds them of That we don't see life through a microscope. We see it through the telescope of worship. Well, the altar they make is an altar of uncut stones. Just to tell you quickly what that means, and then we'll move on. But the altar stones, these were God's creation. They're not man's inventions. And it reminds you, the way of salvation is the forgiveness of God. It's not man's... Effort. So, so don't, touch, don't cut the stones. You have, nothing to, you have nothing to contribute to this. You take the stones. You stack them exactly the way they are. That's what makes the altar. It's God's altar. We try to cut and shape stones for our own altars all the time. We make excuses. We try to rationalize our behavior. Explain away our sin. Sometimes we do it by trying to be good enough so that God will accept us. Some people I know, some church people I know, they bet their life on their own righteousness, self-righteousness. Ebal and Gerizim, these two mountains, they remind us. They remind us of this. And they remind us of the centrality of God's Word. And worship. Worship demands from us, it calls to us, an amen in our life. Let me ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll wrap it up. When's the last time that God graciously restored you from a failure? Do you remember? When you stumbled and you you went to the Lord and laid your life before Him, your perspective is changed. What's true about who God is comes into Focus, and then you begin to see everything else with more clarity. See, it, it, I'd say it this way. A lot of times we dress up this Christian life. We do it with a bunch of fancy Christian words, you know, or pious Prayer. And we forget to come to the point of admitting that we're sinful and then laying that sin before the Lord, confessing it. It reminds us that Jesus, the death that he died, restores us to this right relationship with God. So what's the the response to that? I want to take you forward almost 1,500 years to the New Testament. You don't have to turn there if you want, if you don't want, but you can if you want. It's in John 4. And it's when Jesus meets the woman at the well. And you know what well he meets her at? He meets her at Jacob's well. You know where it is? It's right in this plain between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And Jesus comes to have a conversation with this woman whose life she's living like everything's under the microscope. And Jesus comes with this telescope of perspective to remind her of what worship is. Well, you may be familiar with the story. It's when Jesus comes and he meets the woman in Samaria. The disciples, they didn't want to go there. But Jesus doesn't. He meets a woman at the well at midday. And w- women didn't usually go to the well at midday because it was hot. And yet she's there. Which means she doesn't want to be around the other women. And Jesus knows this. And he begins to press and say things to her like, hey, well, you know, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, oh, well, I don't have a husband. He says, no, you're right. You've had five. And the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. She answers him in chapter 419 of John. says, Oh, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Is a huge understatement. And then she goes on to say this Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, probably pointing to Mount Gerizim. But, but you say that it's in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. We worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. But the hour's is coming. And now it's here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeking such people to worship him. The woman goes on and she says, you know, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Her perspective's being changed. She's spinning to lift her head up from the microscope, and she's beginning to see how big things really are. She's reminded there's a Messiah coming, and then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So, worship has two parts. First, it recognizes the superiority of God. When you worship, you recognize, I'm in the presence of God. And secondly, we we assume this posture that's appropriate to being in the presence of God. Worship literally means to ascribe worth to something. It means seeing what God is worth and then giving to him what he is worth. That's what's going on in Joshua 8 there. It's this renewal. It's, it's worship. It's, it's resetting and, and reminding us of who God is. That's what we did when we took communion this morning. Worship's active. Tearing with our ears and then seeing with our eyes and the truth piercing our heart. And then it's responsive. There's, a, there's an amen of our life, which means I believe, I'm, I'm certain, and I'm adjusting my life to the reality of the truth of who God is. There's old stories about Benjamin Franklin and... A uh, guy, uh, George Whitfield, and Whitfield was a preacher. He was an evangelist. Franklin, by all accounts, was a, was a non-believer, at least a non-Christian. He, he would say about himself, "You know, I'm not a Christian. I, I believe generally in God, but I, you know, I don't believe that Christ was God." It, it, one of the things that always bothered him was whenever George Whitfield would come to Philadelphia, Franklin would go and see him because he loved to listen to him preach. And he said, whenever Whitfield preached, he sensed the presence of God. He didn't like it, but he sensed it. And he couldn't keep himself away. What he found out about himself is that he'd end up giving too much money at the end of the service. Whitefield... Um, started out in an orphanage in Georgia and always had a heart for that. So he began to raise money for orphanages wherever he went. So at the end of these outdoor preachings, he would take up an offering for orphanages. And uh, troubled Frank, every time he, he preached, he'd give him more money than he wanted to. So one time he goes and he says, look, I, I'm not, I'm not going to give any money. I'm going to go here and preach, but I'm not going to give any money. And I'm going prepared And so he takes nothing with him. As Whitfield was preaching, the power of God fell on the congregation. Everybody sensed it. Everybody saw. Everybody's perspective was enlarged. The offering plate comes around. Franklin turns around, borrows money from everybody he can find. Throws it in the plate. See, when you've worshipped, you, you feel this need to respond with an amen. I'm not talking about giving money. I'm talking about giving him your life. Maybe the amen for you this morning is to give him your sin. You know, the, the sinfulness of your life. Just when God becomes real, when his truth penetrates your heart. There's this clarity about your life that emerges and those precious things that you hold on to in life. Some of the things you know are wrong. Some of the things you're clinging to in life. Amen. Amen is to let them go to confess your sin. Maybe it's to confess the priorities of your life. Confess your heart's been clinging to all the wrong things. That in the light of Jesus, all those things are far less worthy of your worship. In the light of the glory of Jesus, you let go. Maybe this morning as you give him your life, you say amen with your life, with your heart, with your praise, your life's mine. Whatever you want wherever you want, whenever you want. You know, another thing about worship is it leaves us wanting more. Worship's both satisfying on the one hand and, and creates longing on the other hand. It, it both quenches your, your thirst and it creates Thirst. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, He says, My people, they've exchanged their glory for what doesn't bring them profit. And then He says this, this is so fascinating to me, always has been, Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, Be appalled, oh heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate declares the Lord. Be shocked, Bethel, by what God's about to say. He says, my people have committed two sins, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you know, when we come to worship, we realize... And we have forsaken living water. We've made our own little bowls with which to drink water that is no water anyway, and it can't even hold that which we're trying to scoop up. God says, come and drink and, and worship. That's what it'll be like, and it'll be that way for eternity. We come to the living water, and we drink, and we drink, and we drink. look up. It's worship. We'll do that forever. What's your perspective this morning? You're seeing life through a microscope today? Are your eyes awakened? Is your perspective attuned like a telescope? That the magnificence of God has come into, into view for you. That's what he invites you for this morning. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us today. We We are so easily distracted. We're so easily drawn to the small and minuscule and Meaningless things in life, and we just we blow them up. So distracted by them, we worship some of them. So, Father, I pray this morning that that your word, as it's come to us through your Spirit. Shaking us awake, has helped to change our perspective, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, who you are. That Father, your word has been a telescope for us. That it helps us to see how big you truly are. And so I pray you do that. In our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.